Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 19, 11 through 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, please be with my words. Let them be yours. Please be with our ears and our hearts. Let us receive what you have for us today. Please be in our lives so that we can live more like Jesus. In your name, amen. How many people have heard of Grimm's fairy tales? Okay. Do you know where those came from, how we have them? Two brothers who did what? <laughs> Scared children for a living? Yeah, kind of. So they didn't actually write their fairy tales. The fairy tales are attributed to them because they went throughout the Black Forest region of Germany and collected folk tales that were already in existence, that were, people were telling them, and they um, got passed around. And, and so they just collected them, compiled them, and the ones that they compiled get their name put on it because they, they don't have an official author. 
these stories. So did you know that there are different versions of Grimm's fairy tale? What's the difference? Yes, some are very grim. So when the brothers Grimm collected their folk tales, they, it seems like, I mean, I'm sure they encountered variations on them, but what they wrote down often was the more grotesque version possible of these stories. We have sanitized versions of these fairy tales that like, and Disney has done some of this, um, you know, C Disney's Cinderella is, you know, a dream is a wish your heart makes and everybody lives happily ever after and, you know, she, Cinderella encounters some trouble on the way but it all gets resolved and it's great. Well, in the Grimm version, the two stepsisters try to fit their feet into the glass slipper and their feet are too big so they cut off their toes or their heels and there's like blood and I mean, it's gross. So, and there are other fairy tales that are like this too that we don't usually see in children's books in the library. So like, sometimes the stories are still disturbing, but the original stories are often even more disturbing. Um, so this parable that we're looking at today has two different versions in the Bible. There, Matthew records a parable of the talents, and Luke records a parable of the minas. And it's possible that the reason why they're different is just because two different people recorded it. They're still, they recorded it with a slightly different slant. Um, it's still the word of God. The message, the, the message is still the same. But God, God inspired, let's just say this here, God inspired the writing of the Bible, but I don't believe that means that he put people into a coma and just had them write. It wasn't automatic writing. Like, you can sometimes hear about people in more New Age practices who do this automatic writing thing. That's not the way that the Holy Spirit inspires people. He doesn't shut us off. <laughs> and so when we read the Bible, we see the personalities of the person that God inspired to write his word, as well as the words that God wants us. So, so Matthew records some things one way, and Luke records them another way. But in this case, it actually seems like maybe Jesus told two separate parables um, around the same time, but have with a slightly different point from each other. Matthew's version is the most popular and the most well-known, and so when we read this one in Luke, we tend to see the same things in it as what we see in Matthew, but they're not actually the same. So, um, and there are people that I know personally who aren't a big fan of the parable of the talents in Matthew. Kathleen is one of them. You want to um, tell us a little bit about what is the problem with the parable of the talents for you? Because you're not alone. I mean, you've said this to me, but there are other people that I know that have said the same thing. Um, yes, yes. 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 Um, actually, a really dumb spot. <laughs> I warned you ahead of time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Wow, I wasn't, I didn't say hate. <laughs> um, okay, well, all right, so I have gotten much, the, my, the intensity of my aversion to this parable has gotten better over the years, but I'm, I'm serious in that there were periods of time in my life, actually kind of when I reconnected with Pastor Jen, that like this, 
this parable of the talents in Matthew caused me to actually like almost feel sick physically because like I just I did not like it that much because the way that I was reading it it felt like it was confirming all of the worst things that I believed about God like like the whole idea of God being the guy who goes off into this other country and then he asks for an account of what you've done with your stuff it's like God what if I am afraid of you are you just gonna like like, you're not going to be gracious, you're not going to be kind, you're just going to smite me? Like, like this is, and I'm like, Jesus, you're giving God a bad rap here. So, like, this was, for me, just really emotionally, like, it just pressed on something that I already believed, and I was hoping was not true, and then it just pushed, like, it just made me want to run away from God, not to God, so. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Cool? Yep. All right. <laughs> Good luck. Thanks. <laughs> Um, actually, that I, because I already knew how you felt about this, um, that is something that we're going to address today, but we're not going to finish addressing it today. I'm going to tell you, the, we're going to relieve that tension more fully next week. Um, but, we, but we do want to talk about that. What kind of, the thing about the parable that Kathleen didn't like and that a lot of other people don't like is it feels like there are these expectations put on us, right, that we have to live up to, and if we don't, maybe God really is that scary, angry God who's going to say, away with you, you're dead. Right? This is, this, this is the disturbing thing about this parable. And on some level, it's even more disturbing in Luke's version, because Luke drags out the part about the king himself. So in Matthew, the focus is actually three servants, and they each get a different number of talents, which in the Bible time is money. Um, in Luke's version, the focus is really the king himself. And the questions that come up are, what kind of king is this? Is he actually worthy to be king? What kind of king are the people in the story, are the people that are listening to Jesus tell the story, and we who are reading the story, what kind of king are we expecting? Our expectations make a difference to the kind of king we have. So we're going to talk about the frame story as usual. The frame story of this, which Paul didn't read for us today because I didn't ask him to, is the story of Zacchaeus. You know, the little short guy that climbs up a tree to see Jesus, and he's really rich, and Jesus goes to, he's a tax collector, he goes, Jesus goes to his house, and Zacchaeus is transformed by Jesus, and in the, in verse probably 10 of Luke 19, Jesus says, today, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Actually, that might be verse 9. Jesus, this the Zacchaeus story and then this parable go together, and right after this parable, Jesus sets off to Jerusalem to what will be the triumphal entry on what we call Palm Sunday. And so the people know he's heading to Jerusalem, and they hear him talking about salvation at Zacchaeus' house, and so in verse 11 it says, the, pe the people assumed that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So, 
Jesus tells them, knowing this, Jesus tells them this parable to kind of hint at what's going to happen maybe instead or how that's actually going to play out. This parable is kind of unique because it almost has a frame within a frame. The frame story is Zacchaeus and, and the people expecting the kingdom of God to come at once, but then there's this story that Jesus tells about. There's a king, and he goes to another land to be made king, but the people don't want him, and so they reject him. But he becomes king anyway, goes back home, and then there's this story about the servants in the minas, which is another amount of money, like talents, but actually less. So this frame within a frame is the king opposed. Here's something curious. Jesus is actually directly referencing a relatively current event. It turns out that, you know, you guys know who Herod is, right? So there's Herod, who was the king when Jesus was born, who wanted Jesus to be killed and instead had all the babies of Bethlehem killed because he was trying to kill Jesus. And that was a, there was a family of Herods. These people were Jewish or partly Jewish. They were not royal, though. They weren't from the line of David. They didn't actually deserve to be kings, but the first Herod had done something militarily helpful to the Romans, and so the Roman emperor said, okay, you guys can be the kings of Judea. And all of them were corrupt. And the first one, at least, was crazy. They probably were all a little bit um, psychotic. Anyway, so at some point, and I should have looked this up, but I, I didn't. Um, one of the original Herod's sons, Archelaus, was going to be made king. And the Jews said, we have had enough of this crazy family. We don't want them. And so they sent a delegation to Rome to say, we don't want this guy to be our king. And Archelaus had 3,000 of them killed. Ten years later, they tried again, and they actually succeeded in getting Archelaus kicked out. But Jesus is referencing this story about a king who is being imposed on a people. The people don't want him, and so he kills them. Last week, he referenced possibly a Jewish folk story that Paul brought up um, about Sodom, and this time he's referencing an actual historic event. The thing that Archelaus did is kind of what you would expect a regular old king to do. Kings want their power, they want to be in charge, there's opposition, do away with them. All of the Herods were bad kings, so you would especially expect that of them. They were not afraid to kill people. The first Herod killed half his family members, including his favorite wife. So this killing people was just second nature to them. So why in the world is Jesus telling a parable about a king who we know usually represents God and comparing him to Archelaus? Did you say exactly? Exactly. Right. Okay. So we're going to kind of pull this apart over the course of this talk. Um, but we want, I want to reference 1 Samuel 8, which we read part of in our responsive reading. In the story in 1 Samuel, the people of God, the Israelites, haven't had a king except for God. 
they haven't done a great job of obeying that king. Um, and they also realize that everybody else around them has kings. They really want a king to be like everybody else. And Samuel, who's been the judge and has been kind of keeping tabs on people and doing it, not a bad job, feels rejected and goes to God with their request. And God says, look, they're not actually rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. But so you need to warn them what a king is going to ask from them, what a king is going to demand from them, but then you need to give in to their request. You need to get them a king. So at first, the people way back in the First Testament wanted a king who wasn't God. Now, they don't want a king at all. They want to be in charge. They don't want God to be their king. They don't want Archelaus to be their king. They don't want anybody to be their king. They have basically assumed that all kings are the same. And so the question that Jesus is posing here to these people who are expecting the kingdom of God to come at once is, what kind of king are you expecting, and what is the nature of the king that you think you want? What, also, what is the nature of our expectations? Is the king actually worthy of his kingship? Are the people and the servants worthy of the king? So, we have a few sets of characters in this parable. There's the king, there's the servants, and there's the subjects. The king is obviously the king. The servants actually live in the king's household, and they have a job to do for the king. And the subjects are the people, the other people from this other land that the king has been made king of. Jesus, in the first sentence of his story, distinguishes this king from Archelaus. Even though he's comparing them, he makes them different because he says, a man of noble birth. The Herods were not of noble birth. They were not of the line of David. They were imposters. They were not supposed to be king. And so he's already saying there's a difference between these, even though this story kind of plays out the same, there's a difference between these two kings. A man of noble birth goes off to this country to be made king. Jesus is telling a story based on true events and upending it so that our expectations are already a little bit shaken. Wait, <laughs> this isn't, our starting point is different. The story is happening the same, but our starting point is different. So the king goes off, he's appointed king of people who don't want him to be their king, goes back home after having assigned ten of his servants, different than the three in the parable of the talents, ten of his servants to take some money that he's given them. They all get the same amount of money in this story, not different amounts, and puts it to work until he gets back. He doesn't tell them how to put it to work. He just says, here's three months' wages. Put it to work until I get back. Then there are the subjects. The subjects hate their king. They send him a rejection letter which is sort of a callback to another parable we've talked about. If you guys remember the parable of counting the cost, building the tower, and also what do you do if a king is coming against you with a bigger army? And they are not doing what Jesus was implying you should do in that case. Send a delegation and say, okay, yep, you can be our king. They don't do that. They do the opposite of that. Okay, 
The king is made king. He returns home to see how his servants have been doing with their task. We get in this parable, unlike the parable of the talents in Matthew, we get a sampling of the servants. So Jesus says there are ten of them, but he only highlights three. The first one, the second one, and another one. How'd they do? <laughs> Good, medium, bad. Okay, that's, yeah, basically. The first one multiplied his talent by ten. The second one multiplied his or her talent by five. And the third one, I mean, did I say talent? Mina. Mina. The third one wrapped it up in a cloth. Why did the third one wrap up their mina in a cloth? Fear. What were they afraid of? Wasting the money. Okay. Because why? Because they expected the king to punish them. Okay. So let's talk about expectations. What did the king expect from his servants? To put the money to work. Exactly. Did he say how much they had to gain? Nope. Did he say how they had to put it to work? Did he say that they had to actually turn a profit at all? Correct. Okay. He wanted them to work diligently with the resources that he had given them. What did, what does it seem like the first two servants expected of the king? To multiply their wealth? Okay, possibly. That the king would be happy with them. Right. What did another servant expect of the king? Brutality. Maybe, yeah. Another servant expected the king to be a king like Herod Archelaus. He said, I, I know, he's determined he is sure about this. I know you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Okay. So there are some other expectations in this story, right? In the frame story, the people that are listening think the kingdom of God is going to appear at once. Is this story for them? Or is this story for us looking for the end time? Right. It's for all of us. Of course. God spent the entire First Testament trying to become king of the world through his people. Of course God is king. He made the world. It's really his. But God doesn't take things by force. And so God chose a people to reestablish his rule in a world that had rejected him already. And some of the leaders of God's people in the First Testament did a good job. They made some good headway in multiplying God's kingdom and using what God had given them to use. Others did nothing to further God's kingdom, and still others actually opposed God's kingdom. Right? And eventually, they rejected God so hard by worshiping idols and doing all kinds of things that God had specifically said not to do, that God said, okay, I'm going to have to reject you for a while, 
you're time out and sent them into exile for 70 to 400-ish years, depending on how you look at it. Now he's back to see what they did with their minas. Literally, God is back. God is heading to Jerusalem, which is where the king of the people of God is supposed to reign from. The people expecting the kingdom of God to, be, to arrive now are correct. But it will turn out that the way that it's coming is not what they expect, and they won't want this kind of king any more than they want Archelaus. But this time, they're going to try to kill the king before he can kill them. Right? N.T. Wright says, Jesus is not just speaking about God, God's kingdom, God's return to Zion. Jesus is embodying it. Concealed within his own messianic royal mission is the ultimate, more fateful mission. Israel's God himself, in human form, is returning at last to the city and temple dedicated to his honor to put to rights at every level that which has gone wrong. Jesus went to Jerusalem to be made king. And on Palm Sunday, they essentially made him king, but not in the way they expected. He didn't become king. He didn't take his kingship in the way they expected. And still... He is king now. He's already king. But he's still not fulfilling it in the way that we always expect. And so he's going to have to return again. And that is the, how this parable is for us. When he returns, what kind of servants will he find? The answer to what kind of servants the king finds when he gets back is dependent on what kind of king we expect him to be. So, let's talk about the king we're expecting. In this story, the king's expectation has nothing to do with the actual amount of money. It's not the, about the yield. The king has given his servants authority to use an amount of his resources, his resources, and do something with it. They, he's given them authority. He's the king. He has the authority. He's given it to them. They can use it how they are able to use it. Jesus doesn't actually give us... He's, he says there are ten servants. So presumably the other seven had other experiences with the resources that the king gave them. Um, but D Jesus doesn't say one of the servants actually tried to use the money but lost it all. Or Jesus doesn't say he gave it to one of the servants and the servant just broke even. There's none of that because either it doesn't matter because at least those servants were still being obedient to put the money to work. If it didn't work out, maybe they aren't good at that kind of thing. I wouldn't be. <laughs> I, I'm not great at money. I, I don't waste a lot of money, but... Yeah, like that wouldn't be my skill set. So maybe it's not their skill set. Maybe that doesn't matter. But what matters is that they were obedient to put the money to work. Here's a resource. The king has given me authority to work with. I'm going to work with it. 
Or maybe it's impossible for the resources that God gives us, if we're obedient and put them to work, maybe it's actually impossible for us not to make at least a little return because if we're obeying God and we're cooperating with God, some kind of growth or benefit will happen to somebody, even if it's only the servants, somehow. Obedience with what God has given us to do brings growth. It just does. The first two servants clearly have different skill levels. Maybe they have different skill sets. The next task that they're given, they're all given the same amount of money, but the next task they're given is tailored more to their individual levels. The one that is able to raise a lot of money, here you go, you can you're good at managing this amount of money, so now you can manage 10 towns. The one that gets five actually isn't any less worthy than the first one, but clearly is better at managing a smaller amount, so you can be in charge of five cities. They, they both make money with their original mina, and they're both given towns to oversee in the appropriate amount that they can handle. This means if they're given authority, first they're given authority with the king's resources, and next they're given authority with the king's kingdom, right? They're given some towns. These are probably towns in the area that didn't want the king to be their king anyway, but he's setting up governors or some other type of um, authority that represents him. They're given that skill. Because the king gives them this authority over people now, it seems like it's pretty clear that both the first and the second servant support their king. They did what he said, they benefited and they benefited the kingdom, they accept his kingship. They believe that this king is worthy to be king. And they experience him as a good king. So they're not afraid of him, so they do what he says, they don't worry about the fact that they're actually putting his money at risk because that's what he told them to do. The third servant does not accept the kingship of the king. He says he's afraid, and he probably is, but in his fear, he's not accepting the kingship. He doesn't trust the king. He doesn't trust that when the king said, here, take this, put it to work, that the king will treat him fairly if he puts it to work and loses. So in spite of apparently living in the king's palace, he has the same mindset as the people that the king went to rule. He doesn't accept the kingship of the king. They don't accept the kingship of the king either. He doesn't really know the king. He says, I'm afraid of you. That means he hasn't taken the opportunity to get to know the, this king. Because he can't be that afraid. He gives the king this scathing critique. He's calling the king a crook. I was afraid of you because I knew you take what doesn't belong to you. And you're a hard man. That's what I knew. I knew that about you. I was afraid. But he tells it to the king's face. So maybe he's not really afraid. Maybe he's virtue signaling. 
you think? Jesus is showing the people that he's telling this parable to, and us now, that we need to be careful to avoid the danger of treating our true king the way we would treat an imposter. Anybody, doesn't matter what their politics are or even what their religion is, anybody who sets themselves up in the place of God is an imposter who does not deserve to be king. Only God deserves to be king. So now these people are rejecting anyone, including God, as their king. They rejected the unworthy king in real-life history, but they're also about to reject the true worthy king, too, because they want the kingdom for themselves and they cannot tell the difference. The third servant did not waste the king's money. There was a servant a couple weeks ago who wasted his master's money and he figured out a way to actually get his master to say, you know what, good job, dude. This guy does not get that, even though he doesn't waste a cent. He didn't do anything with the king's money except to give it back. When at least, yay, he gave it back, but he's virtue signaling by doing this. He thought he was morally superior to the king. He's basically deciding there are some things that the king is not worthy of, and I don't really support that, so I'm going to give him back this, which is his, but he's not going to get anything else from me. He's not worthy to be king. He's not worthy of those other things. He's suggesting that some of what the king has does not belong to him, and some of what the king is gaining does not belong to him. There are two ways this can go in real life. It can turn into, well, I believe in God, but I just think it's inappropriate to tell other people about him because they need to be happy in their own religion and whatever they're doing, like, it's fine. As long as they're happy, that's okay. That's one way. There's another way this could go. Super aggressive, bullying, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm going to fight you. That doesn't usually win any real subjects for the king either. This servant has decided he knows better than the king. And so the king judges him and the rebels in the kingdom on the basis, not of who the king is, not on what they've done, but on what they expect the king to be like. He says, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Catch this. The king is not correcting the servant's idea about him. That wouldn't work anyway. If he said, oh, but I'm really so nice. I'm such a nice king. Why don't you want me to be your king? That undermines his authority. Right? He's actually putting himself under the servant. He's catering to the servant. He's not correcting him. He's just repeating him. This is what you think about me? Okay. If this is the kind of king you think I am, that's the kind of king I will be to you. Clearly that's the kind of king I already am to you. The king doesn't correct the servant's ideas about him. He doesn't say, you know what, 
you're totally wrong. He does, also doesn't say, you know what, you're totally right. He just says, oh, you know this, do you? This servant is judged on what he believes to be true of the king. He believes the king is a hard man who takes what doesn't belong to him. But here's the thing. Everything belongs to this king. Everything. It's impossible for the king to be a hard man who takes everything that belong that takes things that don't belong to him because everything belongs to him. Everything belongs to him and everything can either treat him as their king, loving king, the king that they are getting to know, or they cannot. And the king acts the way the servant expects him to act by taking the mina that belongs to the king and giving it to the servant who has shown that he is able to take care of a decent amount of resources and also a servant who is willing to work in the name of the king. And then he judges the enemies of the king too. The enemies of the king do not want him to be king over them, but he's the king of everything. He is king, whether they want him or not. So the only way for the enemies of the king to not have him be king of them is for them to be dead. Right? If he's king of everything, they can't actually exist if they don't want him to be their king. So he says, okay, they fully rejected me. They have to be killed. Keep in mind... It's a super disturbing ending to this parable. The parables are getting darker. This, we only have one left, guys, next week. Um, and they're getting darker because Jesus is a week away from being crucified. But think about this. The enemies of the king are about to kill him first. This is the ultimate rejection. The only way they can come back from the consequences of that is for them to, turn, to change their mind. Jesus knows that people are going to reject him as king. They're trying to keep him from ruling. The crucifixion will be their rejection letter. But he's giving them a warning now, just in case they can hear it. Or just in case, maybe, they remember it later. I think we could say that our world is getting grimmer, too. There have been other seasons in the history of the world that have been pretty grim, where people have thought, Jesus has got to come back sometime soon, right? And we think that. A lot of us have been talking about that. I would love, he can come back today, I would be happy with that. But we don't know for sure, because it's happened before. God has a whole lot of patience. We're going to talk a little bit more about what kind of king we actually have, but we're going to consider the fact that Passion Week was, which we already celebrated this year, but the week between Palm Sunday and Easter was a tense week. 
for Jesus if for nobody else. But I think it was tense for other people too. And so I'm going to leave us a little bit in the tension and just ask us to consider this week, to pray this week, and really think, what kind of king are we expecting? If you want, you can read next week's parable, which is in the next chapter, um, just to get a little bit of a clue as to what kind of king he might actually be. But it's important to remember that the king we get is the one we expect in the end. And what do we know about Jesus? What do we know about the kind of king he is? He loves us. Amen. So let's expect that, and let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are a loving king, so loving that ultimately you allow us to decide what kind of king you are. It doesn't change who you are, but it does change our experience of you. Lord, I pray that each one of us will encounter you as a loving king and that you will encourage us and we will be joyfully willing to use the resources that you've given each one of us in your authority, for your glory, no matter what the yield. In Jesus' name, amen.